0: Good morning, and welcome to The Light 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogi, you may call 525-1859 or on your all cellular phone Star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll free
1: 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line and as always we welcome your questions. If you're joining us for the first time here at 88.7 FM, we have an hour where you can call in and ask questions about the Bible maybe as it applies to your personal life or your understanding of what the text is actually saying or some issue that you're facing in your church or ministry. If we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone locally. Again, the number is 525-1859. We live uh, stream through the Internet at at, uh, a number of different places where you can get us. There is an app for WAGP Radio and people listen to us all over the world on their phones. You can listen as well at our website at WAGP.net. And for our internet listeners, if you want to call us, you can do so directly at our toll-free number, 877-WAGP-980. Or you can email us directly here into the studio. The email address is tbl. That's for the Bible line, net. When you call, you can go on the air live. or If you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Rick, as always, it's great to be here.
0: It is indeed, Pastor, and we already have a live caller standing by, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line.
2: Hello, Dr. Brogy.
1: Good morning. Thanks for calling. How can we help you today?
2: I have a uh, very heavy question that's been on my heart. We have seen quite a lot of changes in our church, and um, they have removed the flags from the front of the church, and they have also removed the cross. And it was instructed that they didn't want to offend anybody. I can't see where that is biblical at all.
1: Hmm. Well, I I agree with you. Uh, You know, one, I'm proud to be an American, so I'm a flag-waving Christian, and you probably had the American flag and the Christian flag in the front. And if the Christian flag is offensive to them, my, uh, that's terrible. But the bigger issue is the fact that the cross itself has been removed and the cross is the symbol of Christianity and what we stand for and what we believe as Christians. And we should never be ashamed of it because the cross represents the gospel. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so their desire to remove the cross is really uh, an expression of the wisdom of man because he's just said prior to this in 1 Corinthians 1, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ Jesus and him crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called Jews and Greeks, it's the power of God, the wisdom of God for your salvation. So the Bible tells us that the cross will be offensive, that it will be foolish to some people, but God hasn't called us to be politically correct. He's called us to be biblically sound. In any church that would remove the cross for the purpose of not being offensive, well, they're not worth their real estate that they've place they're building on. Uh, it's terrible, absolutely terrible. The members should come out of their seats, and if they haven't or are unable to, it just tells me that they've been lulled to sleep probably by a false teacher. Remember, when Satan comes into the church, he doesn't come, uh, you know, portraying himself like this evil personality. No, not at all. That's not the typical way in which he manifests himself. God's really clear that when the evil one comes, He comes uh, as an angel of light. Paul, when he speaks of people who called themselves apostles, who are not apostles at all, he said, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of life. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants, his ministers, his pastors, his preachers, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose ends shall be according to their deeds. And so listen, sometimes when you look for the devil, all you have to do is look in the pulpit. Um, He's there and we should have our eyes wide open. There's no way you can get around the fact that the cross is a stumbling block and it will be offensive to some. The Bible's crystal clear on that. And of course, God tells us in Uh, second timothy that all who desire to live godly in christ jesus will be persecuted so there's persecution and political incorrectness that we have to put up with when we stand up and speak the truth and uh, that's what we need to be willing to do does that help a little bit maybe you want to ask a follow-up
2: um does that go along with the 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 worship also
1: uh well sure um and again, you know, here's, here's the deal. This is the day that we're living in, is more and more people have created a, a church paradigm, uh, a church model of sorts that has the believer, not the believer in mind, but the unbeliever. And so they have adopted a mindset that is re- really contrary to Scripture. Um, the worship service is not to be designed first and foremost with the unbeliever, but with the Christian in view. And so God gives us some clear uh, indicators of what should happen when the church is gathered. And so, for instance, you know, we have a a huge church in South Carolina uh, where the pastor two years ago played Highway to Hell as their theme music for Easter Sunday. Why did he do that? Well, he wanted to make all the unbelievers who would come— very comfortable. And then he uh, did some other satanic song. I mean, these these are songs done by groups that literally worship the devil. But Perry Noble felt like, well, this is what we need to do. Um, And again, it, it goes back and it's getting worse, but it goes back to guys in the 1980s, like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, who felt like, well, we need to create a seeker sensitive church on Sunday morning. And there'll be other times when we will gather for Bible teaching. The problem with that is, one, on the first day of the week, God has dictated that that's the day his people are to worship. All ten of the Ten Commandments still apply. There might be a different expression of them, but they still apply. Uh, For instance, um, the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother. And when you read it, the Decalogue for our listeners, by the way, are found in two key places in the Bible, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. In the Deuteronomy account, you have the full expression of the promise that's attached to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. What's the promise? Well, when you honor them, uh, that it might be well with you and that you might live long in the land. The Bible says in what land? Well, in the land of Israel. It's, uh, he's giving the Ten commandment initially to the Jewish people. And he says, you'll live a long time in Israel, and you will live not just a long life, but the quality of life that God wants you to know when you live in obedience. When you come into the New Testament, that same commandment is quoted in Ephesians 6. And God tells children, obey your parents, you know, honor them, respect them, and so forth. He says, it's the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you, and what? That you may live long on the earth. And so he expands it from the land to the earth. It's the same commandment, but with a broader application or a different application. Under the new covenant, we still keep every day we serve the Lord, every day we live for the Lord. But there's still one day in seven as modeled in the Acts of the Apostles, as taught in the epistles that we, in a very special way, come together to worship the Lord, and the Bible's clear that that 's on the first day of the week. the Lord of the Sabbath dictated that the church, the body of Christ now worship on the first day of the week, and God gave explicit commands in the pastoral epistles, which would be first and second Timothy and Titus as to what should happen. He gave examples in the Acts of the Apostles direct commands in places like Ephesians five as to what happens when the church is gathered. And we don't sing secular music to make the world feel comfortable. Um, We sing spiritual songs and hymns to God. Um, We read the scripture and the word of God is to be preached and taught. Preach the word in season and out of season with great patience. Reprove, exhort, instruct. God gave very clear uh, delineations of what is to happen even when the word of God is preached. Um... Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's not a sermon that is feel good. That's not a Joel Olstein kind of sermon. A man who writes in his own publications that he doesn't think pastors should preach about sin on Sunday morning. Because people hear enough negative things during the week. Well, how can you reprove, rebuke, and exhort without preaching about sin? How can we preach the Bible without preaching about sin? How can we preach a gospel of salvation by grace if we're not sinners? So again, the devil comes, he's slick. We tend to be impressed by man's wisdom and man's results rather than by God's wisdom and God's methodology. What to me was so telling was not only what a man like Olsteen has written in his books, but when he's confronted live, and you can read the transcript when he's uh, interviewed by Larry King a few years before Larry King exited, do you believe Jesus is the only way to God? Do you think people can get to heaven only through Jesus? And three times explicitly he denied that. That should have said volumes to people. It's not until he gets thousands of letters that he realized, oh, I've made some of my constituency and some of my financial supporters mad that he backs off it's not like well he just misspoke he was asked directly three times i've read the transcript and he backed off from the truth Uh, listen the gospel the cross is offensive and our goal is not to offend people our goal is to preach the truth and sometimes before you can make a person glad you got to make them mad and you make them mad when sometimes when they see their sin. I've had people leave community baptists just steaming mad at me because all I did was teach the Bible. And some of those people have later years testified, Pastor, you may be so mad, but it's like you put a thought in my heart that I couldn't get rid of. Well, I didn't put the thought there. God put it there. That's the Spirit of God working in an individual's life, convicting the world as Jesus promised of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's his sovereign, holy work that he does. He uses pastors, but he does it. And uh, sometimes it's not until they get mad and they come face-to-face with their sin that they will indeed respond. So the worship service is to be done with the believer in mind. And here's the detriment of adopting the paradigm that Rick Hybels, uh, that, excuse me, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels presented to the Body of Christ years ago. And a lot of young pastors said, "Oh, this is what we need to do." Look at the results. Look how big their churches are. Well, bigness isn't always an expression of blessing. It might be, but not always. Sometimes it's an expression of apostasy, and sometimes it's an expression of making the world happy. And it's not our likeness to the world that really is used of God to bring people to Christ. It's our differentness from the world. Uh, You're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, It's our unlikeness to the world that God uses to bring people to himself as salt creates a thirst and preserves righteousness and as light dispels darkness. And so what's happened is on the first day of the week when most of God's people are going to come, you know, people have told me, oh, Willow Creek, they have the Wednesday night meeting where, you know, that's when they open the Bible and preach. Yeah, that's when, uh, you know, 70% of the evangelical churches are closed in the greater Chicago area and people from all over the greater Chicago area come because they don't have any other place to go to. And the uh, population even then, you know, goes to about 25% of their Sunday morning attendance. And so what's happened? They've created people who can't think biblically. And the devil is so smart. If he wanted to destroy evangelicalism in America, and he's doing it. He's doing a fine job. He couldn't walk 25 years ago into evangelical Bible-believing churches and say, well, we no longer need to believe in the authority and the infallibility of the Bible. He couldn't do that. And so what he did was so crafty, he said, well, let's just dull them to the truth. And we'll take uh, Sunday morning, and we won't really teach them the Bible where they're sound in doctrine, where they're discerning between good and evil. And you give that enough time, and you open the door for disaster. So, like, if you join Bill Hybels Church in Chicago, Willow Creek Community Church, and there are many Willow Creek associate churches all across the country, you signed a statement that says, we will willfully and joyfully submit to women pastors. Well, listen, I love women, and I love my wife, and I love the women in our church. Not like I love my wife. But, listen, uh, God has given different roles for men and women, and the church. And we want to blur those roles and uh, and obliterate those roles. God's given different roles for men and women in the home. Uh, We want to blur those roles and obliterate those roles. And that's what they've done. And so is it any wonder that now the church across America that has been feminized in an unhealthy way uh, is now adopting homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle? And so what happened? The seeker-sensitive church gave birth to the emergent church in America. And so you had guys like Rob Bell who would come to Willow Creek, you know, and taunt his doctrine, which when he came out with one of his first books, I was criticized up one side down the other by saying, this guy is, he's off. He's way out there in terms of his teaching on the virgin birth. He is not orthodox. Oh, you're extreme, Pastor Brogy. Well, then, of course, he comes out, you know, 18 months ago. It's a bestseller on the New York Times, and he denies the eternality of, of hell. Hell is a real eternal place of judgment because in the end he says love will win, and there is no eternal wrath of God. Well, that makes people feel good. That may be an attractive message, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And then three weeks ago he comes out in favor of homosexual marriage. This is a so-called evangelical and this is the fruit that this kind of thinking produces, where it's a short step, where people are soon theologically illiterate, biblically stupid, and error will enter into the church and like a germ that comes in and destroys and destructs and tears apart, that's what will happen. Oh, but it will produce numbers, and numbers are expression of God's blessing, They're not always an expression of God's blessing, Hmm, and we need to be alert to that. Just
0: like the Book of Jude. That's right. All right, we've got another call. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning.
1: You are on the Bible Line. Good morning, Brother Carl. Good morning. Thanks for calling,
2: Brother Carl. I believe the Scripture teaches that one must believe and then they're saved, like the Philippian jailer. The order of salvation, believe and then they're saved. Those are Reformed theology, and I know that's a broad scope, but say that we are regenerated, made alive, and then we believe, what would be the purpose? First Corinthians 12 says, you know, once we believe we are baptized into the body. All right. How could you be baptized into the body prior to you believing? Can you bring some understanding or clarity to that?
1: Well, um The baptism is a big word in the Bible and it's used in different ways and in different contexts. For instance, the Bible speaks of uh, baptism of fire, which is an expression of God's eternal judgment that is coming. It speaks of uh, baptism into Moses, where... Uh, They were identified with the leadership of Moses, as 1 Corinthians 10 expresses, and they walk through on dry ground. They're not wet in the least bit. It speaks of baptism or immersion in water, and it speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When a person hears the gospel, and God's order is very clear. Now, it is true that sometimes in the historical books of the Bible, you will see some special cases in terms of when the Holy Spirit comes to live and indwell in a believer. And it's important that we don't take those special cases and make them doctrinal norms. It's not that you can't learn doctrine, say, from the book of Acts. But it is an historical book, and its doctrine needs to be interpreted in light of the later epistles that are written because there's a change that is going on. And so in the upper room, for instance, uh, that they would celebrate, you know, 50 days after the resurrection on Pentecost. Jesus rose on a Sunday, walked on the earth for the next 40 days. He ascends to heaven and gives him specific instructions. Don't even try to go out and win the world to Christ. Until God the Holy Spirit comes, because He's the key to success and to a holy life. And so they're in the upper room 10 days later, and the Holy Spirit comes. Now, were those 120 people saved before the Holy Spirit came? Yeah, they were God's people. They were believers. If one of them had had a heart attack the day before and died, would they have gone home to be with the Lord? Yes. Were they dwelt by the Spirit prior to Pentecost? No. And so what took place at Pentecost was unique, and there were some other unique expressions to others in the Acts of the Apostles. But by the time you come to the epistles, it's very clear. For instance, in Ephesians 1, when Paul really describes how the Spirit's ministry unfolds in our life, he will say this, uh, in Ephesians 1, verse 13, in him, speaking of Christ in the context, in the Lord Jesus, you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So notice the order. You listen to the message of truth. What's the message of truth? Well, he defines it. The gospel of your salvation. Not gospel, but the gospel. It's articular. The word gospel is kind of a religious word in our day, but if you lived in the first century, it wasn't necessarily a religious word. It just meant good news. But when you put the word thought in front of it, it changes everything. If I ask you for a pen, you could give me any pen that you would like to give me. But if I ask you for the pen, then, you know, I have a specific pen in mind. What is the gospel? Paul said, I delivered to you as a first importance, the gospel. That Christ died, was buried, and was raised. First Corinthians fifteen one to three. That's important because the gospel is the power of God for your salvation, and so He calls it here the gospel of your salvation. So you listen to it because until you hear the gospel, you can't believe. Sometimes people um, quote unquote make a decision and they pray a prayer or they walk an aisle, but they haven't heard the gospel. Uh, unfortunately, there have been a few occasions when we've had speakers, that even at Community Bible Church, who've come in from the outside and, and they've created this vast amount of people who've come down front. And through my pastoral ears, I think, well, the gospel wasn't preached. So what kind of decisions were being made? Well, some that were real if someone prior to that night had heard the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, knew and understood the gospel, and their heart was somehow stirred by God the Holy Spirit, and uh, they decide, I'm going to embrace Jesus as my Savior tonight, uh, because there is an appeal of sorts. But if the gospel's not preached, then other people who have never heard or understood the gospel before all they've done is made quote-unquote a decision and that's why sometimes these meetings happen and when it's all over and the dust is clear like where are they show me one person out of the 300 who came down front well, where are they and they're nowhere to be found because it wasn't a conversion and so sometimes people make quote-unquote a decision and that's not really a decision sometimes all it is is a step in the direction towards the lord Hey, listen, sometimes I will be preaching on a Sunday morning and someone will come down front and they'll tell me they've received Christ and I want to meet with them to make sure they have. And sometimes I will meet with them and I find out, no, they haven't received Christ yet. All they've done is taken a step towards God or sometimes they haven't taken a step towards God at all. Sometimes all they've done is uh, done something religious to cover over their guilt I was dealing with a man about a year ago who came down front, quote unquote. I met with him, and the only reason he wanted to come down front, he said, Well, I want to get, you know, receive Jesus as my Savior and get baptized. And all he wanted to do was commit a religious act because he'd been living with this woman for three years and he had no intention of moving out with her. That's not conversion. He wasn't one willing to call his adultery sin, and so he didn't really have a need for a Savior. Um, and so we need to make sure that having heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. And again, God is the ultimate judge of that. But there are some uh, handholds that he has given us as Christians and as pastors that we can measure to see if the conversion is real. If someone denies the doctrine of the Trinity, we ought to seriously question their conversion. If someone denies that Jesus is God, we ought to question their conversion, because you have to believe that he's God to be saved. If someone believes salvation is still by works, you have to question their conversion. It's not legitimate yet. Why? Because those are things that God is asking you to embrace implicit in faith. So having heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. So they listen, they believe, and then the third verb is they are sealed. Sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's called elsewhere in the Bible the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happens at the moment of conversion. That's why in Romans 8, 9, which we will be studying in our exposition of Romans, we'll come to it in probably a month or two. Paul will explicitly say, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his. That is not a statement that could have been said before Pentecost, but it's a statement that explicitly could have been said by the time the epistles are written, that if you're not baptized by the Holy Spirit, so when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, you're identified in the body of Christ. You're marked. You're sealed. He's God's guarantee, God's pledge that what he started, he will continue And so you're brought as a member of the body of Christ, and so it's not until you're a member of the universal church that you're really qualified to be a member of the local church. And there are only two qualifications for membership in a local church in the New Testament. One is conversion, that is you're a member of the universal church, and the other is baptism by water. That is your symbol of that conversion. Because when one is immersed, which is what the Greek word baptizo means, and brought up, they are saying by symbol, my faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that happens after conversion. If it happened before conversion— because it was a religious act and someone didn't understand what they were doing, then that's like wearing a wedding band without being married. It was just an empty symbol. Your baptism should always be on the right side of your conversion. I appreciate that question. I hope that helps. Let's go to the next caller who's been waiting so patiently. All
0: right. Very good. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Hey, thanks for taking my call. I just uh, had a quick question about um, uh, birth control and the uh, Bible specifically and, uh in a situation where there might be complications or health risks?
1: Well, it's a fair question and a good question. Um, You know, I would say this first and foremost, just to set some broader context. And by the way, my wife and I have written a pamphlet on birth control that might be really helpful to people. I know it's been on our website from time to time. I think it's on her website right now at Mothering from the Heart. Um, But God is very clear that children obviously are a blessing. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And we live in a day where children are no longer seen as a blessing. Uh, They're seen sometimes as a hindrance to my financial goals and the prosperity level that I want to live on but not really as a blessing from God. I don't see many Christians saying, well, God, you've blessed me with just too much health. Will you stop it? I'll take some sickness. Or, God, you know, you, you, you know, I, my paycheck, you know, you just keep increasing it. And, you know, business is so good, and I'm rolling in the dough here. Will you stop it? I can't take any more. Most people don't think in those terms. But when it comes to children, oh, God, I don't, you know, one, maybe two, but no more. And they no longer see children as a blessing. With that said, I I don't have a problem. And again, this is uh, something that you can hopefully read on our website. If it's not there, we'll put it back up. Uh, And I'll ask my wife if she can do that by the end of the day if it's not there already. But um, there are times when a woman's uterus has been operated on, say, and it's not a healthy thing to immediately get pregnant. Or there may be other issues that are going on. And there's certainly nothing wrong with birth control to protect your uh, your wife's health uh, if there are health issues that are going on. So, you know, I don't have a problem with that. That's the real short answer. But uh, please, before the end of the day, see if you can um, – we'll, we'll, we'll put it back up online. We'll put it up on her website mfth.org. And by midnight, God willing, it will be back up there. And you can read like the full answer uh, that we've shared with people in the past concerning birth control. But I just want to give some broad parameters. And so I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question.
0: All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Uh, last week, uh, we had a listener who wanted to know if you had heard of a pastor by the name of David and if so, do you know anything about him, and is he biblically sound?
1: You know, with Easter and all that we were doing, I didn't get to that, but I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll see if I can research him this week. I'll make a note here uh, to do that, but I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one.
0: Lenny from Enfield, Connecticut, uh, writes, I listened to your teaching on the subject of women and their roles in the church. In response to a question I'd had few, a few weeks prior, I had been studying this subject for about two years, ever since the elders in my church announced a plan to allow women to read scripture, lead song, prayer, and communion. I was concerned early on when, where this was heading. The elders gave a six-week class on the subject, Bibles open, and began their argument. I just did not see it like they did. My question is not should I leave, rather how do I leave this group of true believers that love the Lord and whom I've come to love over the past six years? I am the outreach leader, and God has greatly changed my life. I am going to make one more effort and plea that the elders listen to your teaching. If they don't respond, I will leave with much sadness. Do you have any advice for me?
1: Well, I appreciate that question. It's obviously not uniquely my teaching. Anyone that you listen to here on the Moody Broadcast Network, every single pastor, without exception, uh, will teach, indeed, the complementary view of men and women uh, from Scripture complementarianism says that men and women are equal, but while they are equal, uh, they do not have the same roles. They have roles that complement each other. Just like the husband in the home is called the head of his home. His wife is called to submit to his leadership. In one sense, they also submit one to another, but he's the head. You can't have two heads. Um, And again, that is not an issue of equality. That's an issue of roles, and God has many reasons and purposes for that. And this, the smallest microcosm of a society, the family. A child learns respect. And he learns how authority works. He learns how it is and why it is he should respect the elders in the church, police officers, government leaders, and so forth, because he's seen it modeled in the home. God created a model for that. In the church, there are some things that only women can do. For instance, in Titus 2, older women are teach the younger women. It's interesting when you read Titus 2 and you walk through the list of instruction that Paul gives to Titus in this pastoral epistle in terms of who it is that he should be involved in instructing. And he basically says, you, Titus, you, you, you teach the older men to teach the younger men. And uh, you, Titus, you teach the older women to teach the younger women. And uh, you, Titus, you teach uh, the bond slaves, and you, Titus, you teach the young men, uh, but don't you, Titus, teach the young women? And we've ignored that, and because of it, there's many scandals in the church. Discipleship doesn't take place uh, between men and women. It takes place women with women. There are some things that women do a whole lot better job of, too, in understanding women than we would as men. And again, it's not an issue of equality, it's an issue of difference. And so when it comes to pastoral ministry, that's a male role in the church. Uh, It doesn't mean that a woman couldn't have the gift of pastor, teacher, and shepherding women, or the gift of pastor and shepherding women, or the gift of teaching and teaching women. But the office uh, is to be filled by men. God's Word is very, very clear. Now, we can rationalize that. We can say, well, that's antiquated. That's old-fashioned. You know, let's get on board, and, and let's see something that nobody else has seen in 2,000 years of church history. And, you know, you've got to be relevant, Pastor. You, know, you preach like that, man, you're going to turn off the women in our society, and they won't come to your church. You don't want to do that, Pastor. Man, you want a big crowd there, and you don't want to say anything negative. Well, no, we want to tell them the truth. You want your children feminized? You want to set them up for gay behavior? Well, send them to a church where you get women playing the roles of men, and you're already planting the seeds. We can break God's laws, but we're not. But you, you can't. You know, you're going to be broken by him when when you ignore what God says. So God gives some very clear, explicit teaching. So I think you've done what's right. You've gone in a respectful way. Maybe one more time, if you feel compelled to do it, mm give them a DVD by me or John MacArthur or David Jeremiah or someone else and say, hey, these pastors are good men and they love Christ. And, you know, and of course, and I have two messages that kind of walk through all the passages that have been used to say that women should be preachers. And I go through that in my series on First Timothy. Uh, if you get Go online, First Timothy 2.11 uh, 2. through fifteen. I walk through all the passages they use, and and I not only don't, I uh, not simply say what women cannot do. I also talk about what women can do and should do in the high place that God gives them in the home. And so, again, you know, we've ignored principles as it relates to the home. And this is why, you know, women have the mindset that they have. And we've got all these false models and Beth Moore and scores of others who are just creating some horrible, horrible things for the home and for the family. And you want a family like Beth Moore's, do what she does, if that's what you want, You want kids like hers, do what she does. Or do you want to do it right? Uh, think your way through this. This is so important. And Satan is destroying the church and destroying the home, and he's setting up a generation to give their allegiance to the Antichrist. Don't you be a part of that. Let's go to the next question.
0: All right, very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And our recent caller uh, dictated their question. They say, after Christ's resurrection, he was on the earth for a while, and so many saw him does it indicate in the Bible if any of the religious Pharisees did see him and if so did it change their opinion about Christ being the Messiah
1: well it's a fair question um, actually the Bible seems to indicate very clearly that the only ones that he ever appeared to were believers so for instance I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, the Apostle Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred. Now, before Cephas, Paul doesn't document it here, but the Gospels do. The very first one he ever appeared to, by the way, was Mary Magdalene. And then after he appeared to her, he appeared to a few other women in the garden and commissioned them to go tell the disciples what they had seen. Jesus, he lifted up women. Uh, you, you would have thought, well, if Jesus was down on woman, he, women, he wouldn't have appeared to women first. But the very first one he ever appeared to uh, was a, a woman by the name of Mary of Magdala and a few other women. And then to Cephas, then to the 12, after that he appears to more than 500 brethren. Brethren is underscored, it's emphasized, it's highlighted in the original at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Um, and so, again, you know, he, he makes it very clear here that he's appearing to God's people, and he's giving credible evidence to the people of God uh, concerning the resurrection. Now, as we uh, shared last Sunday, if you heard my message on the doctrine of the resurrection, I underscore the fact that, you know, there are different reasons why we believe what we believe, but a principal reason why you believe much of what you believe is the credible testimony of the individuals who are sharing with you. Uh, Why do I believe that I have money in the bank? I've never gone to the bank and seen a box that says Carl Brogy's money on it. But based on the testimony and the credibility of the bank, knowing I don't live in Cyprus, um, you know, I I believe my money is there, uh, that it's going to be there. Well, so it is with the testimony of Scripture, which is a reliable testimony, and the men who spoke it were reliable. And as I said, you really only have a couple of options. You can say, well, these were, you know, good men who were lying. Well, if they were good men who were lying, then they weren't good men, especially in light of the implications of their lie. Or you could say, well, they were bad men telling the truth. Bad men wouldn't write a book like this condemning sin, condemning people to an eternity without God because of their unbelief and rebellious nature. Now, these were good men inspired by the Spirit of God writing and leaving us credible testimony. And it did have an effect on, on individuals who were religious, uh, who had indeed come to faith. I'll give you an example here in Acts 15, since you asked specifically about Pharisees, but certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees came and believed. They believed. Acts 15.5. So, listen, when you got the religious folks getting saved, you know God's really doing something. Uh, and that's what happened. Not all Pharisees. There are approximately 6,000 Pharisees in the day of Christ. It's a pretty big organization. And it's an exclusive organization. But there's about 6,000 Pharisees in Israel. And some of them came to faith. Nicodemus, of course, a ruler and leader among the Pharisees, was a principal uh, Pharisee that we note of in terms of his conversion. But many of them continued in their unbelief because their religiosity blinded their eyes to their need for grace. And so Jesus will say to the Pharisees, it's not those who are well that need a physician, but those that are sick. I didn't come to save, quote-unquote, the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. And so the initial appearances of Christ are to his people. Now, post-ascension, he appears to a very famous Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he will call himself. His name is Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. So there is a principle in Scripture that light received brings more light. Light rejected brings darkness. And so some people never receive more light because they won't respond to the light that they have. If you think about the religious leaders, even when Jesus was born, Herod, uh, Herod the Great, there's a number of different Herods that are mentioned in Scripture. But Herod the Great, who of course is ruling when Jesus comes uh, from heaven to earth through a supernatural incarnation, he says, where's Messiah going to be born? And they said, well, in, in, in Bethlehem. And of course, this is in reference to an encounter that he's having with uh, Magi or wise men. And yet you would think those religious men could leave Jerusalem, walk about four and a half miles over to Bethlehem to see if some of the things that were being testified were true. But no, not these guys. So light responded to brings more light. Light rejected brings darkness. And that's the principle But again, I hope that helps in reference to your question concerning the Pharisees. Let's go to the next question.
0: All right, indeed. Um, Our next caller says today, of course, is a runoff election, and they'd like to know if you have any personal opinion or suggestions on how to determine for whom to vote.
1: Well, I I wish I could vote today. I live on the wrong side of the tracks. um, But if I could vote, I would certainly vote for Curtis Bostick and certainly not for um, our former governor. Uh, Mr. Sanford. Uh, Mr. Sanford, in my view, is not qualified to serve in this office because of serious character deficiencies. Uh, People say, well, we should forgive him. Well, yeah, of course we should. Forgiveness is free, but trust is earned. And he lost a trust, a sacred trust as governor. He left the ship without a captain on it, and it was uh, there, abandoned. And had there been some national crisis going on, had there been some crisis in our state or some city in the state, the governor was nowhere to be found, and no one initially knew he was even gone. They didn't even know the man was gone. And, you know, I see all these signs around, Sanford saves tax dollars. Well, man, he was spending your tax dollars and my tax dollars making these trips to see his little girlfriend down there in, where was it? Argentina? He's down in Argentina, or Mr. Appalachian Trail. He's down in Argentina, you know, visiting his girlfriend. You know, we're conducting business for the state of South Carolina, you know, seeing business opportunities. Well, that's not the way uh, the state saw it because he had to pay that money back, and he received the highest fine, ethical fine in the history of our State of 77 or 79,000, you can check it online, it's one of those two numbers uh, for the ethics violation that he committed. And in my view, he hasn't repented. If the guy had repented, one, when he goes and he apologizes, you know, on national TV, making a laughing stock out of the people of South Carolina, we're just a bunch of stupid country bumpkins. That's how they've portrayed the good people of South Carolina through him. You know, had he really repented, he wouldn't have gone up there and said, I'm so sorry, and I've got my soulmate living down there in Argentina. He would have said, I've done an evil of evils, and I'm going to do everything in my power to win my wife back. But he abandons that precious woman and his children to pursue an adulterous relationship, a relationship that he's not trying to highlight and model, but he's engaged to the woman. Listen, there's still possibilities for reconciliation. She'd be nuts to take him back in the way he is. But I mean, if the guy really, truly repented and had a an eye opener, but he goes to an ear-tickling church in Charleston, that's all it is. It's an ear-tickling church where the pastor doesn't open and forthrightly preach the truth and again it produces numbers but it's not what you need and so yeah he's going to be comfortable in that he should be under church discipline in that church jesus said listen there's different ways people take the exception clause i understand when the exception clause is found of course in in matthew chapter 19 but even the broadest interpretation of the exception clause he doesn't meet I mean, think your way through this for just a second. This guy who supposedly has received God's forgiveness and wants yours. I mean, again, we are to be discerning between good and evil, but today we don't know our Bibles because they're no longer opened and taught, and we're embracing all kinds of error. Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, the broadest interpretation of that text is that if the, if there's adultery that comes in to the marriage relationship, then the innocent party is free to get a divorce, or some would say free to get a divorce and even remarry. That's the broadest interpretation of that. Well, he's not the innocent party, and if he had really repented before God Almighty— he would be saying to his wife, honey, please, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to demonstrate to you that I am a changed man, that I've repented, and I've broken off this relationship. Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, i am probably got thousands of people who are listening through the radio right now who fall into that. And yes, God can forgive you. But listen, God can forgive abortion. I dealt with a man last week who encouraged his girlfriend to have two abortions. God can forgive that, yes, he can. But what I say to him, look, you get your girlfriend pregnant again, just you know go out get an abortion. God can forgive, of course not. No, God can forgive. But this guy's in the thick of it, and he's pursuing a sinful, evil lifestyle. You know what Jesus would say to Governor Sanford if he were here? He'd say the same thing he said to Herod. Herod, you fox. But we don't do that in evangelicalism because that's not politically correct, and we don't want anyone to be offended. I wouldn't vote for that guy for local garbage collector. But I fear that most evangelicals either, A, won't get out and vote today because they're too lazy or they don't even know that it's happening today, or B, they just don't really care, or C, they're going to vote in an uninformed way. Uh, This is the day that we live in, and this is why our country is imploding, and we are in serious trouble. You got a guy like Curtis Bostick, been married to his wife for, I forgot, 30-some years, you know, has five kids doing a great job raising them. He's a man of integrity, engaged in missions, giving tens of thousands of dollars into the kingdom of God and expanding it. He's on a whole different course. And we've got a choice, but I doubt a lot of people will exercise that choice. That's what I fear. Anyway, I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right.
0: Dorena in Augusta, Georgia, writes, God commands us to forgive those who sin against us. But how do we balance forgiveness with accountability? And how do we forgive someone who has committed a serious sin against us or someone we love without excusing that
1: person's sin? Well, God gives us some clear instructions on how to deal with this. For instance, I'll give you an example from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning now in verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, he's saying, don't have a disdain towards unbelievers who are living in immorality and covetousness and they're rip-off artists. There go I, but by the grace of God. He says, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, someone who says, I'm a born-again Christian, but I'm pursuing a, an immoral relationship, and God's forgiven me, and all is fine. Don't associate with that, or a covetous man, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Nothing. It's a rhetorical question. I don't have anything to do with judging outsiders, but the church does with insiders. That's why I say Mark Sanford should be under church discipline. But that church isn't worth the real estate it sits on. Do not judge those who are within the church. But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked one from among yourselves. That's what God says. So, you know, you're dealing with someone that has obviously committed an awful thing against you. And uh, this person has emailed me before, so I know a little bit of the situation. And it's the kind of issue where you need to forgive from your heart. But that doesn't mean there's not accountability. You don't sit down and have a glorious fellowship meal. Oh, all is fine. No, no. You, you send a message. You don't even eat with such a one. That's what God says. So there is accountability. And so sometimes, you know, the greatest, most loving thing we can do is to show that love by expressing accountability. And there are different ways, depending on the sin, depending on the issue, in terms of how that accountability should be expressed. All right, let's go to the next question.
0: All right. Let's see if we have time for Kelvin from Lancaster, New Hampshire. He writes, we have some Christian friends who will not attend. Well, we've got a live caller. We always give preference to live callers, so we'll go to them. Thanks for, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Hi. How can we help you today?
2: Um, just to let you know, I'm on the way to the police station to vote for Mr. Bostic for the second time.
0: Well, that's encouraging. <laughs> Hopefully, not the second time today. <laughs>
2: uh, no, no, no. I'm sure it's been done, but um, I have a question. Just reflecting on the past Easter weekend, um, I'll just have some questions to, try to see if you can clear up for me. On the Saturday, we were in studying about Christ's ascension to uh, witness to the saints. Um, I was trying to find somewhere in the Old Testament where. It said that anyone has went to hell in the Old Testament. Um, I know there's different religions preach um, purgatory and a place of sleep. Um, I do believe there is the a hell. Um, that's not in question. Um, and that you know, that when Christ comes back, then there will be judgment for people to go there. But um, when Jesus descended to witness to the saints. Was it hell, or was it purgatory, or what exactly was it?
1: Well, clearly, the doctrine of the resurrection is taught in the Old Testament, the doctrine of eternal blessing, and the doctrine of eternal retribution is taught in the Old Testament. There's a number of passages. I'm almost out of time here, but let me just read one to you. This is from Daniel chapter 12. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince, this is Michael, the archangel, who one of his special commissionings and expressions of service to God is to the people of Israel. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. He's talking about what Jesus referred to in Matthew 24 as the time of great tribulation. And Jesus will use almost the identical wording where he will remind us that unless those days had been cut short— no one would survive. It's called in the prophet Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble. And one of the functions of the great tribulation period will be used of God, not just to bring a multitude of Gentiles, but to bring Israel to faith that Jesus is indeed her Lord, her Messiah, her Savior. And then we read, and again, remember Daniel's written about six and a half centuries before Jesus ever leaves heaven and comes to earth. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life and others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So he's talking about the resurrection of the body. Again, when an unbeliever died in the Old Testament, he either went to Abraham's bosom or he went to Sheol. And Sheol had two compartments, righteous and unrighteous. And so Jesus tells a parable in Luke 16 of the rich man who dies, and he goes to to hell, to Hades. The Hebrew word would be sheol, unrighteous sheol, contextually. And Lazarus goes to righteous sheol, Abraham's bosom. And eventually there's a resurrection of those saints to life or judgment. We're out of time. Wish we could spend more time. Have a good day. Get out and vote.